On the afternoon of January 25, 2003, a man walked into a Salt Lake City department store hand-in-hand with a little boy. Five minutes later, surveillance video caught him walking back out of the store, this time alone. It would take about an hour for fellow shoppers to notice that the boy sitting in the shopping cart had been abandoned. Police and the public wanted to know, who was this boy who had abandoned him there? Why hadn't he been reported missing? And where were his parents? It would take several days for many of these questions to be answered, but in the process, many more questions would be raised. This is the Simply Vanished Podcast. I'm Josh Newville. And I'm Kathy Lee. This episode is sponsored by Wondery's Suspect, an investigative series about mislaid justice. Season two chronicles the disappearance of 12-year-old Janelle Matthews. Listen to Suspect wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members, you can binge the entire series ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Jeanette Corpez and Lyle Montgomery had a tumultuous, intense, and fast-moving relationship. They met at the Super Kmart where they both worked. He was the pharmaceutical manager and she was a checkout clerk. They had both been married previously and Montgomery had just left a long-term relationship a few months before. Despite their 15-year age gap and the fact that they worked together, they began dating. And shortly thereafter, Jeanette moved in to Montgomery's Rosalinda Drive townhome along with her three-year-old son. The relationship quickly had problems. On October 26, 2002, they were working together and started arguing. According to Jeanette, Montgomery drove off and left her stranded at work. She was forced to take a taxi home and then, because she didn't have her keys, forced to break into her own home. After she gained access around 7 p.m., she went to her son's room to gather her belongings. She was angry, and she saw Montgomery and told him that she was leaving and taking her son with her. At that point, Montgomery chambered a live round into his 9mm Glock pistol, pointed it at her right temple, and Jeanette just pushed it away. Montgomery then pointed it at her face, and again, she pushed it away. When he pointed the loaded gun at her a third time, she grabbed it with both hands. It was at this point that her three-year-old son walked into the room crying. She let go of the gun to console her hysterical child as best she could, and then called 911. Although she managed to dial, Montgomery forcefully ripped the cordless phone from her hand and pulled out the battery. The police, having just received a 911 hang-up call, called back as was protocol. When another landline in the house started ringing, Montgomery answered the call. When he did so, Jeanette screamed in the background, he's got a gun. When a responding officer arrived, Jeanette had run from the home. She stated that right before the police arrived, when she had tried to leave over Montgomery's objections, he had pointed the gun again, this time at his own head, threatening suicide. Montgomery was arrested without further incident and booked into the jail with a $34,000 bail. A search of the home revealed several guns, a large number of switchblades, stiletto knives, as well as silencers. Montgomery was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, as well as felony child endangerment for aiming a loaded gun at Jeanette's head in her son's presence. Neighbors were, of course, stunned at the events that occurred on their quiet street. I was so stunned when the police were out here, said one neighbor. I couldn't figure it out. He is a very pleasant person to talk to. It was after his arrest, while still in custody, that Montgomery went to the Washoe District Court to seek a restraining order, alleging that Jeanette was the one who had caused the violence. The events described in Montgomery's temporary restraining order application occurred differently than Jeanette's explanation. 
In Montgomery's version of events, Jeanette had kicked in the front door of his house. He had found her in his home, and it was his own property that she was taking, not hers. In the application, he stated that when he told her to leave, quote, she became very agitated and aggressive. She started threatening to kill me. Still angry, she had gone to the kitchen and grabbed a knife. She swiped it at him, cutting his hand that he had put up in a defensive position. It was after being cut by Jeanette that the police arrived and arrested him. Despite how violent their last encounter allegedly was, Jeanette stayed in contact with Montgomery even as she lived in California with her ex-husband because of him. It is unclear if Montgomery knew where she was or if he simply utilized the post office to forward her mail to the correct place, but according to her ex-husband, Joel Corpez, Montgomery had written a letter to Jeanette asking her to move back to Reno with him. She did, returning to Montgomery on December 27, 2002. Just two days later, on December 29th, the couple took advantage of Nevada's notoriously easy matrimony laws, and they walked into a Reno-based wedding chapel to get married. Wearing their street clothes, they applied for a license, and minutes later, were married. Marcia Katner, the owner and wedding officiant, said that she didn't suspect anything unusual. In fact, she called Montgomery a, quote, gentleman in every way. She also described Jeanette's boy, who we'll call Ben, as quiet, well-mannered, and wanting to stay by his mom a lot. Five days later, they returned to the wedding chapel in rented formal wear and redid the ceremony in order to have photographs taken. The officiant again commented that Montgomery's demeanor seemed very normal. In fact, she said, quote, he seemed very hesitant. He really did. She was really more into it than he was. Yet in an interesting contradiction, the owner also said that she recalled Jeanette saying something along the lines of, he wants to do this and I'm going along with it. According to Montgomery, on January 3rd, the day of the photograph ceremony, that was the same day that Jeanette said that she didn't want to be married anymore. Whether this was the catalyst for Montgomery's decision to move or whether it had been previously planned is unknown. But by the first half of January 2003, his townhome was up for sale. Jeanette met with the realtor at the townhome on January 13th, 2003, telling her that she was getting a divorce and moving with her son to Redding, California, a city 200 miles northwest from Reno. The next week, on the 21st, she spoke with her ex-husband, Joel, on the telephone. Police believe that this phone call originated from the Reno townhouse. According to her ex-husband, there was nothing unusual about this telephone call. When asked what she had said to him, as this was the last known contact with Jeanette, he responded that she told him they were, quote, living with some friends, and that's about it. Why she didn't tell him about her living situation is unclear. Perhaps she was referencing her future plans for California when she said that she was living with some friends. Perhaps she was embarrassed about the situation she was in and her marriage to Montgomery, which was short even for Nevada standards. Or perhaps she didn't want to tell him because it was possible that the marriage was never legal in the first place, as she might have still been married to Corpez. In an interview, her brother-in-law told the early show that Jeanette had mentioned she was filing for divorce, but when she had called Joe, she told him she'd put a hold on it. Quote, when she called him last week, the first words out of her mouth were, I didn't get the divorce. That call with Jeanette's ex-husband was on January 21st. The next known incident in the case occurred on January 25th when Montgomery took Jeanette's three-year-old son, drove him over 500 miles to Salt Lake City, Utah, exited the interstate, drove to a nearby shopping center, and then walked to the Shopco department store. Security footage showed Montgomery holding the three-year-old's hand as he entered, placing him in a shopping cart and then wheeling him to the toy aisle. There, he handed the boy a plush SpongeBob SquarePants and then walked outside. 
it took more than an hour for people to recognize that the boy had been abandoned and for police to be notified. Because the boy was only three years old, he couldn't help the police identify him. He didn't know his last name and didn't know his mother's full name. He identified that he had sisters that he no longer lived with and thought that he lived with his mom and her boyfriend, but he didn't know where. Nobody matching Ben's description had been reported missing, and with only first names to go on, the police relied on the media. It took several days of news stations running the photo of the boy and asking for information before someone came forward. It was then when a babysitter recognized Ben and called in to identify him. Montgomery was identified in the security footage by Reno's deputy district attorney as she was the one who was prosecuting the charges from October 26th. She classified him as an extremely violent individual and stated that she was concerned for Jeanette's welfare. Once he was identified, the Salt Lake City Police interviewed with Ben again, this time showing him different pictures. The boy was able to identify Montgomery and confirm that he was the one who had taken him to the Utah department store. When asked how he had gotten there, Ben recalled that Montgomery took him for a nighttime drive in a big black vehicle through the mountains, and that they had left when it was dark and he woke when it was light. He did not indicate that his mother had come with them. Ben also stated that the day before he was abandoned, Montgomery had shot at his mother and hit the dresser. With Jeanette's son identified and alerted to possible violence in the home, police became concerned for Jeanette's welfare, fearing foul play. They would discover that the January 21st phone call with her ex-husband was the last substantial contact with Jeanette, although the Reno Police Department reports that someone saw her at a local grocery store on the 23rd. It became clear that something had happened between the January 23rd sighting and January 25th when the boy was abandoned. Notably, Montgomery took a week vacation from his job starting on the 24th with plans to return on February 2nd. Assuming minimal stops, the 500-mile drive between Reno and Salt Lake City would typically take about eight hours. Given that Ben was left at the department store around 3 p.m., accounting for the time change, then Montgomery would have to have left no later than 6 a.m. on the 25th, meaning that whatever happened, it likely happened on the 24th. Montgomery's Saturday, January 25th, was taken up by the 16-hour round-trip journey, and an acquaintance told police that he watched the Super Bowl at home on the 26th, Sunday. He was also seen on surveillance video at his local Home Depot buying three rolls of plastic, five packages of cotton cord, a wheelbarrow, pick, shovel, gas can, saw, and gloves. It is worth noting at this point that the man lived in a townhome with an HOA that handled the outside maintenance and landscaping of the property, so it is unknown what reasoning he had, if any, for having tools that police said after the search looked as they had maybe been used once. On Monday, the day after his Home Depot trip, Montgomery's real estate agent stated that she called him to see if she could show his townhome to a potential buyer. He declined, responding, quote, Now is not a good time. The house is a mess. I don't want the house shown. We will talk about it on Thursday. According to one of his neighbors, on either Monday or Tuesday, the neighbor saw Montgomery back up his pickup truck into the garage. A short time later, the neighbor said he saw the truck pull away with, quote, an unknown item in the bed of the truck concealed by a tarp. After his identification, the police served a warrant to Montgomery's Reno home on January 29th. On that same Wednesday, a neighbor stated that Montgomery told her that his relationship with Jeanette had deteriorated and that he had taken time off of work to move her to Reading. When police served the search warrant, they found that Montgomery was lying on the floor in the dark. He was curled up in a fetal position with a handgun about 20 feet away. When asked where Jeanette was, he replied, she left. Although he volunteered to go into the police department to answer questions, he later changed his mind, not helping, refusing to answer questions, and indicating that he wanted a lawyer, 
according to Reno Police Lieutenant Ron Holliday. Montgomery got his lawyer, but not before he ended up in a psychiatric facility. More on that after this word from our sponsor. On a winter night near Denver, Colorado, Jim Matthews arrived home late, expecting to find his 12-year-old daughter Janelle waiting for him. She had been dropped off after a Christmas concert. He called out, hi Janelle, but didn't hear her. His daughter's shoes were on the floor, but she was gone. And it would be 35 years until she was found, dead. After the discovery of Janelle Matthews' body in 2019, police turned their attention to a man who had told law enforcement years before that he knew something. But they had dismissed him. He did seem obsessed with the case, but was that all he was? A true crime fanatic or a killer? Wondery and Campside Media's podcast, Suspect, is an investigative series about mislaid justice and the kinds of weighty decisions that detectives, lawyers, and jurors make every day. The series is back for a second season, and it's attempting to separate this man's true crime obsession from a possible motive for murder. I personally love season two. It has in-depth reporting, high-quality production, it honors the victim, but still asks the difficult questions. Listen to Suspect wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, Prime members, you can binge the entire series ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Although Montgomery was refusing to answer questions, he had chosen to remain at the police station as he couldn't return home while the police were executing the search warrant. It was at this time that Montgomery began acting lethargic and the officers became concerned for his health. He was sent for medical treatment and it was discovered that Montgomery had mixed Valium and alcohol. Although his lawyer would later categorize the overdose as an accident and not an attempted suicide, Montgomery was still involuntarily committed to a Reno psychiatric facility early Thursday morning. Even his lawyer acknowledged that Montgomery wasn't in the best shape, although he wouldn't label the incident a suicide attempt. Quote, he was in pretty bad shape this morning. He seems to need the hospitalization. Montgomery had been scheduled in court Thursday afternoon in connection with the domestic violence charges from October. While Montgomery remained hospitalized, the police continued to process the house, along with the Chevy truck and storage shed. In his truck, they found a handgun, ammunition, two knives, and divorce papers to accompany his wedding certificate that was also still in the truck. The storage shed produced more weapons, as well as a book that police found of particular interest. The book claimed survival and paramilitary knowledge. An excerpt from the back of the book reads, In the event that our nation is invaded by the foreign devils, it is up to you to destroy them with speed and vigor. Or, and perish the thought, if our capital should fall to the enemy within, I expect you to do your duty. The book's topics included things like the ultimate booby trap, evading pursuit, and how to beat a metal detector, and instructs readers how to use household materials to make explosives and other weapons. But it was the house that had the most concerning evidence. In addition to yet more weapons, including handguns, rifles, and shotguns, there was blood. According to court filings, when police began their search of the home, they found that the carpet and the carpet pad from the master bedroom had been ripped up, rolled up, and placed outside. An affidavit stated that, Examination of the carpet revealed two substantial-sized red stains, which had tested positive for blood. There was a smaller corresponding stain that was seen on the wooden subfloor of the master bedroom, as the blood had soaked through the carpet and the padding to stain the floor. More blood, although smaller amounts, were found in the shower, hallway, and in an entryway tile. All of the blood would later be identified as Jeanette's through DNA. Finding the weapons and blood was certainly troublesome, but it is what they didn't find that was also concerning. As well as missing its carpet, which was outside, 
The master bedroom was also missing the queen-size bed and other furniture, including the dresser that Ben had stated was shot when Montgomery had aimed a gun at his mother. In addition, all of Jeanette's personal items were missing. As court records stated, quote, To this date, all of Jeanette M. Corpez's personal belongings, including items of identification and clothing, except for her vehicle, are missing and unaccounted for. There is a possibility that Jeanette may have been injured, killed, restrained, or otherwise harmed while at or in the residence, the record continued. Montgomery's lawyer later downplayed the blood evidence and recall that the blood stain was so severe that it apparently caused Montgomery to discard the entire mattress and frame. Freeman said, there are a lot of common explanations why a person can have a cut in their own home and have it have nothing to do with violence. This has nothing to do with us, he insisted. While Montgomery remained locked up, the police continued their search for Jeanette. They followed up on secret witness tips, including possible sightings. They combed local recreational areas in the mountains with cadaver dogs, though they stated there was no specific reason to look in that location compared to anywhere else. They searched multiple counties that cell phone records indicated that Montgomery may have visited on the 27th and 28th, and multiple agencies, including the FBI, aided in the search that covered California, Nevada, Utah, and Montana. Nothing was found. On February 26th, after a month in the psychiatric hospital, Montgomery was discharged and then immediately booked into the county jail, as his bail from the October 26th incident had been revoked. On March 8th, Montgomery had his pretrial hearing to determine bail. The judge, after hearing testimony about the October 26th incident, set the amount to a $2.5 million cash-only bail. When asked about the extraordinarily high amount, the judge said the amount was warranted on the assault and imprisonment charges based partly on sealed evidence presented at a closed hearing last month after Montgomery was ordered held in the psychiatric hospital. Montgomery's lawyer, Mr. Freeman, objected to such a high amount, calling it no bail at all. There's no question in my mind that the $2.5 million bail was set because he is a suspect in another case, he told reporters outside the courtroom. He also pushed the narrative that Jeanette was in hiding because she had fabricated Montgomery threatening her with a gun after she had broken into the home to steal things and attacked him with a knife. He said she attempted to attack him with a knife. She made up the gun story to cover her tracks. What better way to get revenge on someone than have him go through what he's going through, Mr. Freeman asked. To support this, he showed that Jeanette had initially stated that it had only been a verbal disagreement and not a physical one. But when she was interviewed later in the squad car, she had, quote, time for reflection and to fabricate. While it's easy to understand how Jeanette may have classified the altercation as verbal, even with a gun brandished as she didn't actually get struck, police did find some evidence that possibly supported Mr. Freeman's explanations of events. While executing their search warrant, court documents show that in addition to the blood evidence, police also found what appeared to be draft letters, possibly written by Jeanette. According to court records, the letters appear to have Jeanette claim that she set Lyle Montgomery up and got what she wanted in his arrest with her signature copied onto them. The judge clearly did not find this evidence as persuasive as Montgomery's lawyer might have wished. Judge Albright said, I have to say the evidence presented at the prior hearing was certainly proof that there's been another crime committed. On Tuesday, April 1st, the district court held a hearing to determine whether Montgomery's $2.5 million bail should be reduced. His lawyer argued that it was absurd to have that high of a bail for someone who was only charged with assault with a deadly weapon and false imprisonment. As Montgomery had not been charged with any wrongdoing in Jeanette's disappearance, and as he had had no criminal history, his lawyer argued that bail should be $10,000. If they want to charge him with murder, then let's get on it, he said. But if they don't, 
then they can't use this judge or this process to hold him. Charge the homicide case or don't. Chief Deputy District Attorney Dan Greco objected to the request to lower the bail, and he argued that Montgomery was a threat to the community and a flight risk. He brought in two detectives to support his argument. Reno Detective Chalmers testified about a phone call he had received from Montgomery in February, several days after he had been admitted to the psychiatric hospital, where he agreed to answer questions about Jeanette and her son. The judge stated that he wanted to hear more information about Montgomery's state of mind during the course of the phone call, but allowed Chalmers to testify as to the content of the call over the continual objections of his lawyer. According to Chalmers, Montgomery told him that the reason he drove Jeanette's son to Salt Lake City was because he knew that the Mormons would take care of him if he left him there. He stated that he had wanted to adopt the child, which is why he took him to Salt Lake City. Quote, That is why I didn't take him to the desert to leave him there to die. I could have taken him to the desert there and popped him. There would have been no witnesses. As far as the removal of the bed and carpet, he stated that he had taken them to the local dump because they were covered in blood. Regarding Jeanette, Montgomery said she would not leave, so I popped her in the face, adding that he beat the shit out of her and that he had wailed on Jeanette until she volunteered to leave. When asked about her whereabouts, Montgomery stated that he had taken her to Boomtown, which was a casino about 15 minutes from their home. There, he stated that he had put her on a semi and told her to go away. When asked if Montgomery had ever admitted to killing his wife, Detective Chalmers admitted that he had not. Another detective's testimony focused on Montgomery's former romantic partners. One stated that she had been in a romantic relationship for six years until June of 2002. According to her, Montgomery had a violent temper and had physically abused her in the past. She also claimed that she had met up with Lyle at the end of 2002, about a month before Jeanette would go missing. She stated that during their conversation, Montgomery had said to her that he had a new girlfriend, but, quote, I can't stand her. I want her dead. Do you know anybody who would offer? Montgomery's lawyer, in an attempt to discredit this testimony, would counter with evidence that other people had claimed that it was the ex-girlfriend that was the violent one and not Montgomery. After considering the evidence, the judge lowered Montgomery's bail from $2.5 million to $150,000, making it clear that they were not swayed by the testimony brought in to support the allegation that the bail should remain at $2.5 million because there was evidence that he had killed his wife. The court has some reservations about their credibility, Judge Hardesty said, especially the testimony of one woman who had violated a protective order filed by Montgomery five times. The judge was not completely swayed by Montgomery's lawyer either, however, who pointed to his lack of criminal history and Jeanette's own problems. Accompanying the lowered amount was a list of conditions that Montgomery was to follow while out on bail. Firstly, he had to stay with a friend who had already agreed to let Lyle live in the apartment. He had to make daily reports to court officials, had to adhere to any medication or therapy orders, and was forbidden from having contact with any of the witnesses in the case. Montgomery agreed to the conditions, his family posted his bail, and on April 7th, he was released in the care of his friend Tom as his vouching witness, someone who had agreed to take responsibility for Montgomery. Montgomery would spend the day following his release, his first day of relative freedom since he had been committed to the psychiatric hospital over two months previously, working with his lawyer on his case. His lawyer then dropped him back off at his friend Tom's apartment around 5.30. It was there, at 11 o'clock that same night, that Tom would come home to find his friend dead. Tom, a security guard, had gone out for the evening and had come home to find that Montgomery had found his service revolver. The judge was aware that Tom was a security guard, but it had not restricted weapons from the home as a condition of bail. 
In what was an apparent suicide, Montgomery died due to a single gunshot wound. A roommate was also in the apartment at the time, but was wearing headphones and claimed he did not hear the shot. The people close to Montgomery and those working the case reacted to his death with disbelief and disappointment. He was in especially good spirits, his lawyer said of their last day together, and stated that he had maintained his innocence all the way up until that night. He seemed very resolved. He was extremely rational. He fooled everybody, he said about Montgomery being suicidal. It's an unusual and bizarre ending to an unusual and bizarre case. Some felt that it was a manifestation of guilt for whatever he had done to Jeanette. Others pointed out that the state pharmacy board had temporarily suspended his license so he couldn't work. He was being treated as a murderer. His wife was apparently missing, perhaps setting him up, and he was facing years in jail, all of which might make even an innocent man become overwhelmed. Lieutenant Holliday called the death a bit of a stumbling block into the investigation of Jeanette's disappearance. By doing what he apparently did, he really tied our hands because he was the only person who could have told us where she was, he continued, referring to the apparent suicide. The lieutenant had maintained hope that at some point Montgomery would feel guilty and confess to what had happened to Jeanette. This obviously never happened, and as Montgomery did not leave a suicide note, the investigation of where Jeanette could be has made little to no progress since his death. Between the circumstances of her son being abandoned and the blood that was found in the home, the police for their part never seemed to put a lot of stock into the theory that Jeanette willingly left, regardless of any past behavior. They said that they were treating this case as a homicide early on in the investigation. This is a missing persons case we're treating the same as we would a homicide, Reno Police Chief Jerry Hoover was quoted as saying. We certainly find that his actions and the information we have would lead us to continue to look at him as a possible suspect. As we approach the 20-year mark since Jeanette Clopez was last seen, it's looking less and less likely that Jeanette's disappearance was voluntary. Jeanette Marie Corpez was 27 years old when she disappeared from Reno, Nevada. She would be 47 today. She's described as 5 foot 6, 160 pounds, Hispanic and white with brown hair and blue eyes. If she is alive, she may also be using the last name Snyder, Accord, or Montgomery. Please contact the Reno Police Department with any information about her whereabouts. I've been searching in the dark Trusting every clue I've found But the truth has not been told There's every corner of these woods is hollow I can't see
trust it being real So I keep 